Welcome to your online coffee break, where we discuss bite-sized topics that inspire, educate, and entertain. Here's your host, a software innovator, award-winning marketer, and astronomy and space buff, Chuck Fields. Hello, thanks for joining us today for your online coffee break. Today, I'd like to welcome to our show my special guest, Andy Weir. Andy built a two-decade career as a software engineer until the enormous success of his first published novel, The Martian, allowed him to live out his dream of writing full-time. Andy is a lifelong space nerd, like me, and a devoted hobbyist of such subjects as relativistic physics, orbital mechanics, and the history of manned spaceflight. Andy is with us today to discuss his latest novel, Artemis, an adventurous and suspense story which takes place on the moon. Welcome to the program, Andy. Hi, thanks for having me. Oh, my pleasure. Andy, we share a kindred background together in software. Can you tell us a bit more about your two-decade career as a software engineer? Well, um, it all began when I was about 15 years old. Well, I guess probably earlier than that. I'd always been a bit of a computer geek, you know, programming away on my VIC-20. Um, (laughs) But yes, I am old. And when I was 15 years old, I ended up getting a job at Sandia National Labs in Livermore, my hometown, Mm -hmm. which makes it sound like I'm some sort of genius child, you know, prodigy thing. But actually, no, it's just they they hired local teens from the town who had an interest in science to be kind of lab assistants, you know, clean test tubes and Mm -hmm. kind of stuff like that. And so I got hired in. I ended up working at this place called the Combustion Research Facility, which was working on a lower pollution fuel And they said, hey, we've got this huge data file full of numbers that we want to run math processes on. And this is in the days before Excel. As I mentioned, I'm old. And (laughs) and they said, so um, there's a computer. Here's a book on how to program computers. Uh, Let us know when you work that out. And then we'll tell you some stuff we want you to do with this data. Nice. And that uh, that began a 25-year career in software engineering. Wow. So now, obviously, software engineering isn't the only passion in your life. When did you start writing? Well, I'd always been writing, like even even as a, t- a teen or a tween. You know, mm-hmm. when I was like twelve, I was writing short stories. Really? Um, they weren't good, but uh, you, you gotta know, start somewhere, right? Gotta start somewhere. And I actually considered going into literature, really creative writing, when I when I was eighteen. And I was going to college, and it's time to choose a major and a college to focus on. Mm-hmm. I, I wanted to be a writer, but I also really like having regular meals. I decided to go into software, which I also was very interested in and mm-hmm. was very passionate about. And so I um, I went with that. But I always, you know, liked writing. Huh. Well, now your novel, The Martian, obviously generated a lot of buzz before the movie came out. I remember reading it. I just love it. But what I understand is that you actually sought feedback from the community to make certain the science used by Mark Watney was as accurate as possible. Can you tell us more about that? How'd that work? Yeah, well, um, earlier, so going back way before The Martian, um, I spent about three years in my mid-20s on a sabbatical to try to break into writing. Mm-hmm. I wrote a book, you've never heard of it, because it wasn't, as, it wasn't that good. <laughs> and, you know, like it's the standard tale of woe that every author has. Um, it's like, couldn't get an agent, couldn't get a publisher interested, couldn't sure. get any traction at all. And after three years, I thought like, well, okay, back to the software industry. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I took a shot at my dream. Didn't pan out, but it wasn't hang your head, sad Charlie Brown music. I really like writing software. I I really enjoy that job. And I got a lot of fulfillment out of it and happiness out of that career. So I was just like, eh, okay, I tried to live my dream. Didn't work out. I'll go back into this career that I genuinely enjoy. Mm -hmm. And at that point, I said like, well, 
doesn't mean I have to stop writing. It just means I'm giving up on it as a profession. Sure. So I set up a website where I dumped my various creative endeavors from short stories to web comics, and I also started a couple of serials. And I was doing three serials at the same time. Uh, one of them was about a, a mermaid in the 19th century. <laughs> Another one was about aliens invading Earth. And the last one was The Martian. And I had, by this time, over the it was about 10 years I had had this website going. And I'd accumulated over uh, just about 3,000 regular subscribers, so to speak. Just, right. It was just a mailing list. Sure. And the, I would just send out an email when I posted new content. And that was it. But... My audience were hardcore nerds, you know, just like hardcore dorks, the kind of like serious science minded people because that, yep, such as yourself. <laughs> and so I really felt like when I was writing The Martian, I thought I was writing it for, for them. I thought I was writing it for this teeny weeny niche audience of like 1% of 1% of 1% of people who really want to see the math laid out in the narrative and everything and all the science and all those details. I had no idea it would have any mainstream appeal. But anyway, um, as I was writing it, I posted a chapter at a time, and they, they would, of course, instantly correct me on any math <laughs> error I made. You got 3,000 hardcore nerds reading your stuff. You're going to find out if you made any scientific oh, mistakes. Yeah. Which is great. It was like uh, I, I just had the, this massive fact-checking pool. So that's why there are the only scientific mistakes in The Martian are the ones that I deliberately introduced to, to, to further the plot. Sure, I understand. <laughs> and there are a couple of those, I have to admit. Yes, I think I know exactly which ones you're talking about. Now, your newest novel, Artemis, uh, has just been released on paperback. Now, I really enjoyed the story, uh, but for our listeners, can you give us a brief synopsis of it? Sure. Artemis, my second book, it takes place in the first city on the moon. Well, the first, the first human city anywhere that's not on Earth. Mm -hmm. And it is, Artemis is the one and only city on the moon. That's the name of the city. And it has a permanent population of about 2,000 people. The main conceit of the story is that it's, it's the 2080s. And uh, commercial space flight has driven the price to lower Earth orbit down low enough mm -hmm. that middle class people can afford to go into space. Mm -hmm. And that's the, that's the only real conceit of the story. From there, it becomes economically viable to make a tourist destination on the moon. And that's exactly what Artemis is. It's a tourist destination. It's about 40 kilometers from the Apollo 11 landing site. And so you can take a train out to the Apollo 11 landing center okay, and yes. uh, yeah, visitor's center, mm -hmm. and you can like look out the windows at the landing site. And if you pay more, you can have a guided EVA tour to go out and get a little better look at it. And yeah, and that's what the economy is based on. And that's what the people are. And I, I based its uh, economics and general kind of social breakdown on like Caribbean resort towns. Mm -hmm. It's very similar to that. Anyway, the main character is a woman named Jasmine Bashara, and everyone calls her Jazz. Jasmine. And she's a, a small-time criminal. She's a smuggler. There isn't a lot that's illegal in Artemis because it's just kind of really almost the Wild West, but a lot more controlled, <laughs> but a yeah. lot more just social, just social norms controlled. People are just more civil, but not a lot of laws, but there are safety rules, and anything that's flammable is highly restricted. So she smuggles that in. One of her main things that she smuggles in is tobacco, right. for instance. Mm -hmm. Anyway, she gets an opportunity to do like a big job 
for a big amount of money. And, of course, everything goes smoothly. There are no complications. And uh, then she gets a big pile of money and everybody wins. No. Obviously, (laughs) as with any heist slash caper story, all sorts of crap goes wrong. She gets in way over her head. And that's uh, kind of the tale that is told in the book. Well, I love the style, too. And I I wanted to know, comparing it to The Martian, did you also see feedback from the community for the science in Artemis as well or not? Fortunately, I couldn't do that because um, this time, you know, The Martian was this labor of love that I was posting a chapter every six weeks or so and getting feedback and stuff like that. For Artemis, it was a straight up book deal. And so, of course, the publisher doesn't want you posting your book online for free when they yeah, want to sell it. That's true. <laughs> you know, they gave me money and stuff like that. <laughs> you know, it literally belongs to them. So I was not able to do that. I have a, a, a very small core select group of beta readers, you know, people that I can absolutely trust with the text. Sure. And that's a small group. They have to be really, really close friends because, yeah. you know, especially coming off the heels of The Martian, like, if if anything that was like, oh, Andy Weir wrote this, if anything like that got out into the internet or into the wild, it would just like, it'd be everywhere. You know, that is so true. And I have to say, my wife and I had the pleasure of going to JPL for the first time last fall. And they talked about when you came to visit JPL, how Andy Weir was like a rock star coming <laughs> It was awesome. I've never felt like such a big shot in yeah. my life as when I was there. It was it was just like, you know, people were coming from, you know, they were like ditching meetings and stuff like that and coming from right. across the whole campus just to hang out with me and stuff like that. I was like, wow. I, I had to blow you away. I couldn't imagine. Oh, yeah. I've never, I've never, like, even with the success of The Martian, you know, writers are not big celebrities unless you're J.K. Rowling or George R.R. R. Martin, you know. You know, or for the Andy most part, Weir. writers, what's that? Or Andy Weir. Or yeah, well, <laughs> Andy Weir at JPL anyway. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Andy Weir walking down the streets of uh, San Francisco or something like that is a non-entity. But <laughs> it was it was it was a trip. I, I, I it was very enjoyable. And out out in the wild, so to speak, when I'm just out, you know, at restaurants or stuff like that, I'll get spotted by somebody maybe about once a month, maybe. Okay. Once a month, somebody will be like, hey, uh, I, I recognize you from this thing I saw on YouTube. I just want to say I loved your book, and hey, can I get a selfie and stuff. Excellent. So it's actually kind of nice. It's the exact right amount of fame. It's like not famous enough that my life is really impacted, Good. but famous enough that like about once a month I get this nice little ego boost. <laughs> <laughs> well, we appreciate that. Now, let's get back to Artemis for a second. So Jazz, okay. this character seems to be like the exact opposite of who you are. How, what was it like getting into her head and coming up with a character well, like that? Believe it or not, she's not as opposite of uh, me as you might suspect. I mean, obviously, she's, she's a woman and she's Saudi, so physically very different. Mm-hmm. But mentally, so the thing to remember is like Mark Watney, oh, I'm a smart ass, okay? And mm-hmm. Mark Watney is all the traits that I have that I like. Mm-hmm. He's based on me. He's all the traits that I have that I admire about myself, things that I like about myself, things I'm proud of, mm-hmm. and none of my many, many flaws, right? He's the idealized version of me, the distilled, <laughs> like, all the things I like about me, me at my po- at my absolute possible best. Mm-hmm. Uh, jazz is a little bit more like the real me, a, a little less relentlessly optimistic, because mm-hmm. uh, Mar- uh, Mark, like, never gives up on anything. To be fair, Jazz never gives up either, but less less optimism more cynicism. She has a very difficult time with interpersonal relationships. Mm-hmm. She's, uh, she doesn't really get friendship that well. She doesn't understand that. She doesn't, she's so independent that she doesn't really realize that 
you know, this is how human beings work. And sometimes you do rely on your friends to help you with things. Mm -hmm. And she's really bitter about mistakes she's made in her past. And yes. she's very aware that there are mistakes. She's, she blames herself and mm -hmm. she has a lot of regrets and stuff. So, so this is like two reasons she's like that. One is she is based on kind of my darker sides, you know, mm -hmm. and then also uh, two, I wanted a more, I wanted a deeper character. The Martian was a very successful book, obviously, mm -hmm. but no one would accuse it of being literature. I can see that, sure. At the end of The Martian, Mark Watney has not changed at all. He's undergone no personal change. He's undergone no growth. You don't even know anything about him other than he's smart and he didn't want to die. And that's, that's it. Like, so there's absolutely no depth in him or any character in The Martian. And that's fine. It's a plot-driven story. But I, I, I still feel like I've got a lot to learn as a writer. I've got a long way to go. And one of the things that I really wanted to hit hard and work on was character depth, complexity, and, and stuff like that. I wanted uniqueness among the characters. So that's why Jazz, I tried to make her as deep and complicated as, as possible. Sure. And have undergo change and growth during the story and i i feel like i've done that unfortunately <laughs> i maybe made her a little too self-destructive in that i've gotten you know I, of course i pay a lot of attention to the feedback and the sure. reviews and everything like that anybody any writer there are two kinds of writers in this world those that aggressively read all the reviews of everybody and those that lie and say that they don't <laughs> but i care a lot about reviews because this is how you become a better writer by seeing what people have to say mm -hmm. and some of them you discount just because it's you know just because it's just like well i'm never going to be the kind of writer you that guy wants but right. uh, a lot of the reviews are that people were driven away from jazz as a protagonist some some people were driven away from her as a protagonist because they said like i reached a point where i i couldn't root for her anymore because she was so belligerent and self-destructive i didn't want her to win anymore huh. and that's when you've lost the reader so i went a little too far on the depth on that well, one see, I, <laughs> I don't know about that because i think maybe it was a mistake or not i actually read one of those reviews before i read the book and and i think it was you talking about how some people didn't like the character and i guess i went in knowing oh she's going to be a little rougher on the edges and for some reason that made me like her even more <laughs> yeah you know, it really uh, i thought it was just really well done yeah, some people liked her. Um, also, um, writing a female lead was a challenge for me. Obviously, I'm not sure. a woman. I'm also not Saudi, right? right? So a lot of the differences between Jazz and myself are kind of washed away by the setting. First off, there's pretty much no racism in Artemis. Right. It is, right? So her ethnicity truly does not matter. Pretty, there's almost no sexism either. So the fact that she's a woman doesn't affect how people interact with her that mm -hmm. much. As for the Saudi culture that she might have, well, she grew up in Artemis. So while her father is definitely a product of Saudi culture, mm -hmm. and he is a devout Muslim, and I had to like look up a lot of stuff about Saudi culture to see, oh, how do they feel about this? How does mainstream? I talked to people from, you know, I talked to friends I have who are from Saudi Arabia to say like, oh, I, this is the kind of guy I'm doing. And, nice. and everybody actually is very happy with the character of her father, even like all the, you know, all, all the Arabs who have given me feedback, you know, from inside and outside of Saudi Arabia said like, yeah, that guy, 
was a very believable Saudi. But Jazz it did not grow up in Saudi Arabia. She grew up in Artemis. So she is a product of that culture, and that's a culture I made up. So I'm right by definition. Yes, you are. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes. However, all of that stuff aside, men and women are still different. We still kind of approach problem solving differently. There are some fundamental psychological differences that are inherent in our gender. Absolutely. And so writing a female lead was, I was like nervous about that, right? And so I did the only thing I know how to do when I have a, an unknown is run it by subject matter experts. In other words, women. Mm-hmm. I gave the manuscript to every woman I could trust in my, you know, in my circle of trust who wouldn't put it on the pirate bay mm-hmm. and got their feedback and said, please tell me, I mean, read this, give me all, all the feedback you have, but nice. also pay particular attention to how believable jazz is as a woman. And they gave me feedback on said like, well, this is like kind of what she says here isn't really the sort of thing women say. That's a thing that kind of only men say and, and stuff like that. But even still, even with all that, a lot of, a, a lot of women didn't like jazz. They didn't consider her a believable woman. But I think there is a, a percentage of those people who there is probably nothing I could have done, you know. Yeah, there's always just that. There's always that. Knowing, knowing I'm male writing a female, there, were, there was like literally nothing I could have done. So it's hard to sort out the wheat from the chaff on that. Sure. Like where is the useful, you know, feedback versus the less useful even aside from that, because that's challenging enough, but my gosh, coming off the enormous success of your first novel, The Martian, going to this one, what was the pressure like when you say, okay, enormous. I'm going to write this? Yeah, I could imagine. <laughs> I could not imagine. Enormous pressure. I had to basically tell myself, look, The Martian is, that's a kind of success that an author will get once in his career if he's very lucky. Right. And I happen to get mine right out of the gate. Okay, so I have to accept the fact that if I write 20 more novels in my career, I'm still going to be known as Andy Weir, author of The Martian, and 20 other novels. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I have to accept that. And so what I was shooting for is I, I just want to stick with what I'm doing. I want to write science fiction mm-hmm. and hopefully write good science fiction. And if people say, it's not as good as The Martian, but it's good and it's fun and I recommend it, that is a win to me. That's definitely where I am, too. Now, you mentioned your short stories earlier, and I have to admit, when I was um, doing some research on you, that's why I came across the story of the egg that you wrote Mm -hmm. in 2009. A lot of people don't know about that. Are you actively writing other short stories, too, or is it... Um, I don't write short stories as much now because I I have, like, book contracts that occupy my time. But back when writing was a leisure activity, then I would have some random idea for a short story and bang it out. Um, I do have a couple of short story contracts (laughs) that I have to... Phil, I just actually sent one off yesterday. Nice. So I am writing short stories, but generally I only do it as kind of in conjunction with marketing. Like, sure. oh, okay, this short story is going to come out around the same time as the paperback edition, kind of thing like that. So it's like that. You know okay. what I mean? And so I just wrote one. I don't know when that one's coming out. And then I'm I'm doing another one. Um, Blake Crouch is uh, putting together a compendium of short stories by lots of authors, mm-hmm. and I'm going to be writing one uh, for that as well. Wow. Now, imagine your life has changed a lot, obviously, since the success of your first novel. Do you miss computer programming, or are you like, is this the dream of you're now free to write at your leisure? Um, bit of column A, bit of column B. I mean, it's always been my dream to be a full-time author. I, I do. Uh, and, and so I am now living the dream in as much as this is what I always wanted. But I really do bit, I really do miss software engineering on many levels. First off, I love the objectivity of software engineering. It's like, not like, 
oh, write a story people like. That's that's very <laughs> vague. You yes. know, I don't know what to do. But here is a set of features that we need implemented by March 8th. Right. So, you know, that's just nice and simple. There is a correct outcome. Correct. You know, <laughs> it's, it's very objective, and I like that. But much more than that, I miss uh, being part of a team. I'm a I'm a pretty social guy. I liked going into the office in the morning and grabbing a cup of coffee, talking to my teammates. Say, hey, how's your dog? He wasn't he was sick the other day. You, is, did he get better? Or like, hey, you went to the you went to the lake last weekend. How was that? Or right. oh, your wife's uh, your your wife's uh, when's she due? Another month and a half. How's that going? You know, mm-hmm. just just that sort of stuff where. You know, I miss the the social aspects of of an office. I'm a I'm a social guy. I like talking to people. I like interacting with people and I really loved being on a team of like, hey, there's six of us on this software team. We're all working on this product. We're going to figure out all the things that need to be solved, break it up into, well, you're going to work on that. I'm going to work on this. You're going to work on that. Mm-hmm. And we've got our expert at this, so right. obviously he's going to do that or Oh hey, uh, there's a problem in my code. Uh, so come on over to my desk, and we'll we'll figure it out. And I, I really miss that. As a writer, I'm just you know in my home office. You right. know this. Your listeners aren't seeing the video feed, but uh, you are looking at my uh, mm-hmm. my office behind me. It's it's nice, but it's empty. It's just me. <laughs> <laughs> and you know I live with my uh, with my wife, and um, you know, but she's a writer too, so she's up in her office upstairs doing her thing. Very nice. And, you know, I, I it's a it's a lonelier workday than 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 I used to have. I can imagine it is now. What kind of fun question? I love it when I read inside the book sleeve. It talks about your bio. It says that you mix a mean cocktail. I do. Tell me what, what cocktail is it? Well, no, I mean it's not just one. Okay, I, I, I'm into cocktail mixing. Really? I'm into cocktails. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, high-end cocktails, I like to do that. And the secret to high-end cocktails is the same as the secret to, you know, gourmet cooking is use good ingredients. It's as simple as that. Mm-hmm. And then just follow the instructions. And so, you know, I have a couple of books by Dale DeGroff, who is one of the preeminent uh, cocktail mixologists. I just follow the instructions in his books, and I use really good ingredients, and I can make a mean cocktail. <laughs> My personal okay. favorite is the rum old-fashioned, which mm-hmm. is... Not, I, I can't say invented by me because I certainly yeah. I'm probably the ten thousandth person to come up with the idea. But mm-hmm. an old fashioned is usually made with whiskey. Uh, but I'm actually not that big a fan of whiskey, uh, and I do like rum a lot. So I just substitute rum for whiskey, okay. and, and it's a rum old fashioned. Completely different taste, completely different experience, and I like it quite a lot. Wow! When I go to a bar, I'll often they'll be like, "What do you have?" And I'll be like, "I'd like a a, a rum old fashioned." And oftentimes the bartender will go like, "Huh." That's interesting. All right. Well, uh, yeah. Let's. Let, I'm going to make that. And so, it's not quite mainstream yet. Okay. Well, <laughs> well hopefully we'll get the word out with this. Now, if yeah. I may, one more question here. I know this is kind of a general question, but my gosh, with I always tie in science fiction with just inspiring the next generation of scientists out there, and we have some amazing things going on in space exploration. You know, with SpaceX putting Starman on his way to pass <laughs> Mars orbit, what do you think about that? Where do you th- how do you think we're doing and where we're going? Well, I think it's great that we're finally starting to have a viable commercial space flight. Mm-hmm. You know, companies like SpaceX uh, obviously are very well known, but also lesser known are you know like Boeing. Mm-hmm. is uh, starting to lean into it. Of course, Blue Origin is is yes. fairly well-known as well. And I think it's really neat. Uh, I, I think the key forward 
for for that for that Heinlein future, mm-hmm. although maybe an updated Heinlein future where women are equal. But yes. you know, <laughs> yes, exactly. We need that. But but um, the key to that future is the re, uh, reduced price of getting people and items into low Earth orbit. That's the key. And having a commercial space industry, a bunch of companies competing with each other is is key to that now it's real interesting to see the various approaches people are using so you've got of course the very famous elon musk spacex's idea is to drive down the price by you know any means they they the design of their rockets is based on minimizing the costs and they're working on reusability and which is also more more cost savings dramatic cost savings mm-hmm. and what they're they have contracts with nasa and the air force and with um all sorts of other um with private entities who need satellite posted mm-hmm. then we take another very interesting approach a completely different approach of uh, jeff bezos and blue origin now those two th- people like to say oh blue origin and spacex are in competition Ooh, well not really blue origin is going for a completely different market model mm-hmm. they're saying okay we're going to put a we're putting a rocket up. It's not in orbit. It's not going anywhere near as high or as far or as fast as a SpaceX booster. Mm-hmm. And it's a much smaller rocket, therefore much cheaper to make. Right. But it'll go up into space, at genuinely space, not just like going high up into the air, but go up into space and you'll have four solid minutes of zero G during that flight. And then you return to Earth. And you're not even going around Earth. You're just um, going up and coming down. Mm-hmm. But you have four minutes of zero G, which is something that you cannot get on Earth. True. Those uh, like zero G mm-hmm. uh, companies that uh, fly planes and parabolas to give mm-hmm. you weightlessness, you get like 30 seconds at a time. This is like four solid minutes, which is pretty impressive. Yes, and I can see the marketing model, uh, or I can see the business model behind it. It's like, this is much cheaper to accomplish. We will be able to provide this at an affordable price much earlier than SpaceX will be able to provide getting into low Earth orbit at a, hmm. at a reasonable price. So that would be, if that can start to become a revenue positive model, mm-hmm. then Blue Origin would be able to use the continual funds from that to make bigger, better, more advanced rockets that can do more. And then there's one more group, and God, I hate myself. I've forgotten the name. They just had a launch. They're, they they were operating out of New Zealand. Um, help me, help me, Obi Wan. It's definitely, uh, you said New Zealand. That threw me off. I was going to say Virgin Galactic, but no. Well, Virgin Zealand. Galactic, that's a different model. Yeah. But there's one coming out of New Zealand. Uh, I think they're sure. actually an American company, but they have a launch complex in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, what the hell is wrong with you? Uh, you want to launch from Earth's equator. Because you get a you get about five hundred meters a second of mm-hmm. free velocity right. thanks to the rotation of Earth. The further you get from the equator, the worse that is. Right. However, these people are specialists. What they're doing is specializing in putting things into non-equatorial orbits. Um, so what they're all about is putting things into like polar orbits mm-hmm. and, and stuff like that. And they have their own rocket technology that they're using as well. And uh, is it Rocket Labs? That might is be. That it. Their I'm name? not sure. I'm not sure. Rocket Labs. I'm actually, I'm sorry to take the time on your podcast, or maybe you can... Uh, That's okay. We um, aim to be as accurate as possible, Andy, so this is just fine. Yeah, if you're, if you're, yeah, it is Rocket Lab. It is Rocket Lab. That's the name. See, this is why your books are so accurate, because you take the time <laughs> yes, to make sure your facts yeah. are correct. <laughs> so what Rocket Lab does is they're focusing on other, you know, non-equatorial orbits. Mm-hmm. And so for that, you actually want to be far away from the equator because the equator screws with you when you're trying to get into a non-equatorial orbit. So that's really, that's a whole different market segment it is. that they're working on. 
So those are things like weather satellites, spy satellites, if governments get to the point that they trust them enough to launch them, mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And so that's, that's like, I'm like, hey, you found another market niche in space. Great. And then finally, we can talk about Virgin Galactic, although um, people often don't like what I have to say about them. Um, mm-hmm. Virgin Galactic right now, as it sits, is I don't consider them a space flight company. They provide uh, flights that take you up to a very, very high altitude. Mm-hmm. But if you're still experiencing aerodynamic flight, you're not in a spaceship. <laughs> you know, I not yet. Sure. You're not in space. And they go up to about, uh, what is it? I want to say like 70,000 feet, 75,000 feet, something mm-hmm. like that, which is below the flight ceiling of an FR- SR-71. Mm-hmm. That is true. So if the U.S. has a 50-year-old plane that can fly higher than your spaceship, you have not made a spaceship. That is a good point. <laughs> I now, totally agree. This could be, you know, but what's worth noting is, once again, it's finding that market niche. If you, take, if you took a Virgin Galactic flight, you are high enough that you can look out and see the curvature of the Earth. Now, that would be slick. Which is something a lot of people might be more than happy to pay for. Mm-hmm. And uh, you're well above any weather, so you're going to get this beautiful, clear view. That would be amazing. Of, yeah, so it would still be a beautiful thing, except I don't call it space flight. Okay. Well, that's fair enough. Well, I, I can imagine someday soon is going to come. It's such an exciting time with all the competition out there that we're going to see some neat things in the next few years, I think. I could see oh, yeah. you up there. No, hell no. Nope. <laughs> no, 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 no. I write about brave people. I am not one of them. Okay. I have no I'm, I have a, I have a fear of flying. Really? Like in commercial aircraft. Like I would never guess that. Travel. Yeah, it's an irrational phobia that I have. That's um, okay. I have to basically take Valium. I pop it like Pez when I'm when I when I'm getting on a flight. <laughs> well, that's it's good. Prescribed, enough. by the way, by a doctor. Okay, it's, that's that's of course. Like just you know the guy on the street corner. You know, no, that's but yeah. <laughs> what, it's uh, Andy, it's rough for me. Andy, I just want to thank you. I again want to encourage everyone out there to read Artemis. It's a wonderful second novel for you. I just again congratulations on that. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Really appreciate it. Sure. Thanks for having me. Online Coffee Break. Wow, it was fantastic talking to Andy Weir today. I just have so much respect for him coming from a software engineer background and having such tremendous success as a writer now with uh, the release of The Martian and then, of course, his new book, Artemis. I want to encourage our uh, listeners out there to go ahead and pick up Artemis. Uh, it's available now at your favorite retailer. If you'd like to learn more about Andy, you can visit his website at andyweirauthor.com. That's A-N-D-Y-W-E-I-R-A-U-T-H-O-R.com. I want to thank you for listening today to Online Coffee Break. If you'd like to comment on today's topic or subscribe to our series, you can find us at onlinecoffeebreak.com or on facebook.com forward slash onlinecoffeebreak. If you'd like to call us at 317-862-4700, you can leave a comment there as well. We might even play it on the air. You can also follow us at Instagram.com forward slash online break. Be sure to rate us or share this episode with your friends. Thanks again for listening today. See you next time. God bless.